Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And down the line from Brussels, we have Jim Brunsden, our EU correspondent. Also this week, we'll be hearing from Miles Selick, the head of the City UK lobby group. This week, we'll be discussing the decision to locate the European Banking Authority in Paris. Also, the view from City UK on the bleak outlook for Brexit. And finally, fresh back from Singapore, Laura Noonan has a roundup of the world's biggest fintech festival. First, though, to the European Banking Authority, the EBA, which is the umbrella regulator for the European Union, which for a number of years has been located in London. And as a result of Brexit, the EU27 has been battling out over where it should be located. Jim, you join us from Brussels, where Monday evening was when the voting happened in three rounds, very complicated process, and Paris won. Yeah, it did. And it came down to basically a pretty bizarre procedure in the end in the sense that the EU devised a very complicated voting process to determine where the EBA would move to. And the voting process was designed to try and, as much as possible, depoliticise the decision, which is a bit ridiculous, really, because there was masses of lobbying behind the scenes for months on who should get it. But because there was a tie in the end between Dublin and Paris, ultimately the location of the EBA with its 189 staff was decided by a minister reaching his hand into a glass bowl and picking one piece of paper out of two. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem a slightly odd way to go. What clinched it for Paris other than kind of luck? Well, I mean, Paris was always seen as one of the front runners to get it. I think we did a story a couple of weeks ago predicting that the front runners would be Paris, Frankfurt and Dublin. And indeed, those were the three that made it into the second round of voting. There was a very effective lobbying campaign by the French and French finance minister Bruno Le Maire was very active in it in ringing up ministers. And doubtless, there was plenty of horse trading going on behind the scenes. There's more in play in Brussels at the moment than just the location of the European Banking Authority. Yesterday's vote also involved a decision on the European Medicines Agency, another larger EU agency that's currently based in London, which has 900 staff. And so there was plenty of cross-horse trading going on for votes between the two decisions. Also, there's another key decision coming up in the next few weeks, which is to appoint a new president of the Eurogroup of Euro Area Finance Ministers. And so doubtless that was also something going on in the discussions leading up to the vote, another point of horse trading. Let me just bring Laura in here, because as a proud Irish woman, you're looking pretty upset about this sack. <laughs> well, obviously, I think we were totally robbed. I mean, it's a very bizarre thing for it to come down to. But I think the bigger picture, if you think about the three cities who were in the final shakeup, Frankfurt had an obvious right to be there in that Frankfurt already has the European Central Bank. It has a single supervisory mechanism. It has a big financial centre. So Frankfurt has an obvious reason to be in the final shakeup. Paris, too. I mean, France is a very core EU country. France has a big banking sector and they haven't had the kind of calamitous banking history that Ireland has had. So I think for Ireland to have been in the final shakeup, when you think that it's less than a decade since the entire Irish banking system effectively collapsed. For Ireland to have made it to the final three in that context is actually pretty remarkable. Yeah. Jim, talk to us a little bit about the deals that were on the table, because from what I understand, 
there were some very generous offers being made by cities that wanted this agency. Vienna, I think, made the most generous offer of a 25-year rent-free office deal. Paris, by comparison, was offering virtually nothing, 1.5 million, I think, just a one-off payment. Yes, exactly. It's a very interesting point because all the countries that were bidding for the EBA as for the medicines agency put together glossy promotional packages and detailed offers of how this would work. And one of the things they really sought to emphasize in their various offers was that they could offer continuity and business continuity. In other words, a package that would mean that lots of staff wouldn't leave and that the move would not be unduly expensive. Interestingly, Paris was not one of the ones to put a really generous financial package on the table as regards rent and the conditions of the building. But basically, the key thing is the decision doesn't really come down to that. I mean, that was one of the odd things about this process was there was a lot of discussion earlier on this year about what criteria should be used when judging various candidacies to get these two agencies. But really, when it boils down to it, because it was a straightforward vote, these criteria didn't really matter. They mattered only so much as the ministers wanted them to matter, which was probably, you know, being a bit cynical about it, fairly little compared to whatever horse trading offers were going on behind the scenes. Well, for those who believe in Brexit and the merits of leaving the EU, that probably doesn't do much to buttress the argument of Remainers and the whole idea of the merits of a European Union, given what you've just said. But thanks anyway for those thoughts, Jim. Well, let's move on to another item on that broad Brexit topic. I was talking recently to Miles Selleck, who heads the City UK lobby group here in London, about the broad brush of what he sees in terms of Brexit negotiations, the future of the city in Europe, and his general pessimism, really, about what lies ahead. Miles, thanks ever so much for joining us. I suppose I'd just love to hear where you feel we're at in terms of the whole Brexit debate. It feels, looking from the outside, to be pretty chaotic, both from a political point of view and a financial services planning point of view. But are you any more optimistic? So I think the risk at the moment is that unless we have clarity on transitionals, really this side of Christmas, but at the very latest, early in Q1, then the risk is that industry goes effectively through both forms of Brexit, both through a hard Brexit and, if you like, a soft Brexit. Companies are going to have to be certain that they can serve their customers after 11pm on the 29th of March 2019. So they'll take whatever steps are required in order to do that, even if they believe, as I do, that in the end we'll probably get a reasonably good deal with the European Union. So they have to start implementing the worst-case scenario plan, even if it's not ultimately going to be necessary. I think that's right. People have been crossing their fingers and hoping for the best, but they're having to plan and eventually they're going to have to implement those plans for the worst. You can't find yourself in a position as a company where on the day of Brexit, you can't serve your customers or you can't serve them legally. So companies will have to move what they need to move in terms of staff, in terms of operations, in terms of capital, in terms of setting up operations where they need to set up to make sure that they can honor the promises that they've made to customers. And everything ultimately is about working back from that point. Has anybody, as far as you're aware, started to move staff or started to redeploy capital? There have been various announcements, as you've seen, in terms of companies that have announced that they will be going to particular centres around Europe, beefing up operations that they might already have in Europe, opening operations in Brussels or wherever it may be. But what I think is interesting is that when you look at where the redeployments are likely to happen, it continues to fit with the analysis that Oliver Wyman put out roughly this time last year. 
the big winners from a disorderly Brexit or from a low access Brexit aren't alternative European centres, they're New York and the Asian centres. What you'll see in those circumstances is that people will move operations back to their American HQs or they'll beef up their American HQs or they will move operations into Asia where clients increasingly will want to book business, where you have a growing middle class, where you have economic growth that's world leading. And so what happens is that actually the European ecosystem, this sort of intertwined, integrated ecosystem that the UK has been a part of first, arguably for centuries, is weakened overall. And that's the real risk. Yes, because a lot of obviously the business that comes through London at the moment is not Europe related at all. It's global business from Asia or Africa or Latin America that's booked here. And what you're saying is that by kind of opening the Pandora's box of the structure of European finance, then those global structures get revisited as well. What Brexit has done is it's kickstarted or sped up a whole bunch of processes that would have happened over the next five to 10 years. Everything about where you're best in terms of your deployment of capital, of people, of talent, where economic growth is, where you're seeing the pools of capital and liquidity globally, the impact of disruptive technological change. Europe has been the domestic market for the UK for two, three centuries. It's been the launch pad that the UK has utilized, that London as a financial center has utilized in terms of being an international financial center in much the same way that the domestic market in the United States gives the critical mass to New York that allows that to be an international financial center. And it's an ecosystem. This isn't a mechanistic issue. This is something that has grown up organically over those two or three centuries. And you take parts away from that, or you play with it, or you interfere with it, and you create the risk of losing the critical mass and the cluster effect that has underpinned that growth and that role for that period. You said the end of the year or early quarter one is the time when banks and others are going to start moving people and capital. Why is that such a key point? Why so soon? It goes back to working back from where you need to be on the day of Brexit. So if you want to be confident, if you want to be certain that you can serve your customers on the day of Brexit, you therefore need to look at the various long lead items that you need to have in place to ensure that that happens. So that might be a banking license or the insurance permissions that you need. So how long is that going to take? What's the normal process? factor in the degree of time for the likelihood that there will be more of these licenses being applied for than regulators in the other European centers would normally be dealing with, factor in the time for moving operations, for moving capital, factor in the time for moving people. And it's not just moving people, it's about recruiting locally. Does the local talent pool exist? If not, how do you supplement that? These are all long lead time items. It's one of the reasons why this industry is probably a little bit further ahead in terms of its planning and its contingencies than some other industries. It's a highly regulated industry. It operates with highly sophisticated and highly complex instruments. And you need to be able to make sure that you can have all of those elements in place such that you can be certain that you can guarantee that you can continue providing services to customers in the way that you have been. And then there are also issues that ultimately are outside the industry's control. So contract continuity, an issue that's been well rehearsed, making sure that all those contracts are still operable on the basis that they were previously. So all of this, as I say, is a complex, interconnected web of systems and mechanisms and issues that need to be in place so that people can be certain that they are legally serving their customers on the day that Brexit is implemented.
Now, you said you're confident that ultimately a decent deal will come about. Obviously, no one can be certain about that, but you're confident about it. If, as you say, a lot of financial services companies have preempted that outcome by planning for the worst case, moving people and capital, what happens when the decent deal comes around? Do they repatriate everything or is that business that's lost for good? I'm confident there'll be a decent deal because I think it's clearly in the economic advantages of everybody involved that there is a decent deal. The logic, the economic logic, and ultimately economic logic helps dictate political logic, will play towards that. London is proving sticky. People don't particularly want to leave London. They're doing what they can to stay in London. If, as I hope, we end up in a situation where there is a reasonable deal between the UK and the EU27, I don't expect that that will lead to a significant wind back of operations back into London, certainly in the short to medium term. I think once a planning director has gone through the process that he or she needs to go through to determine where they need to be, once they've appointed people, leased office space, whatever the situation may require, it's very difficult to then go back to a board and then suggest that you need to spend a significant amount of money to then move all of those issues, all of those elements back into the UK. I think what's more likely is that people will move the bare minimum they need to move to have the optionality to scale up if necessary. And then over the intervening years and the years ahead, people will determine where they put the balance of their activity and their resource and their recruitment. And if the UK continues, as I'm sure it will, to be a major international financial centre and London continues to be a major international financial centre, remains competitive and remains the preeminent European centre, then over the long term, I'm confident that that will continue to support the growth of UK financial and professional services. A final question for you. When you look at the political landscape, what do you worry about the most? Is it the fragility of the UK government or something else? It's uncertainty. It's uncertainty. So from the point of view of both sides of the channel or indeed both sides of the Irish Sea and the North Sea, what business always craves is stability and certainty. And if we can have clarity about the direction that we need to head in in terms of transitionals, clarity about the increasingly important in the days ahead about what the shape of the final deal will look like, the sort of underpinnings, if you like, the philosophical underpinnings of the vision for the relationship between the UK and the European Union over the long term. You know, there's been a lot of attention on the difficulties of the negotiations. One thing that I think doesn't always get the attention it deserves is the comment that's been used in the Prime Minister's speeches at Lancaster House and in Florence about this idea of a deep strategic partnership between the UK and the European Union, and that that appetite also exists on the other side of the channel. So once we're through the Brexit negotiations, what does that final relationship look like? And how do we move forward in a way that is in the mutual advantage of both sides? Let's hope you're right in concluding your comments on an optimistic note. Miles Selick, the head of City UK, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick. Finally, let's move on to Singapore. Laurie, you're just back from the city-state. You were there to host, among other things, a fintech festival, which you were telling me was the biggest in the world. Yeah, they had 25,000 people attending the Singapore Festival of Fintech over Monday to Friday last week. So that's the biggest fintech festival by some mile anywhere in the world. They had 300 people exhibiting stalls there as well, trying to basically win both investors and also trying to win over banks and other people who they might sell their services to. So it was a very big event. 
And what came out of it? Were the big themes that clearly emerged? What did you come away with? One of the things that did really strike me was how much of what's happening looks very similar to The Outsider. So while there were 300 stalls there, there were far fewer different kinds of things. So we saw a lot around the authentication process. This is basically various firms coming up with better and cleverer ways for banks to authenticate users. Everything from using fingerprint scanning to retinal scanning to other ways of doing that. A lot of people, as you'd expect, were talking about the blockchain, different applications for the blockchain. So whether it was trying to do some kind of commodities venture on the blockchain, using it for other kind of trading, there was a big blockchain theme going on there. Artificial intelligence also ranked pretty highly. So people using it for everything from some of the back to mid office stuff, artificial intelligence, personal assistance to using it for trading, using it for asset management decisions. So that was another big theme. Then the kind of IT and ops space generally, so various ways to be more efficient. Also a fair bit around the front end customer space. So this is basically different apps and different ways to enhance how you interact with your customers. Now, you may think that most banks are actually already doing a lot of this. And the answer is that they are. It's just these firms all think they can help banks to do them better. Final point, is it a coincidence that this, the world's biggest fintech festival, was happening in Singapore or is Singapore really at the forefront of fintech globally? Singapore really wants to be at the forefront of fintech globally. So the event was hosted by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. They are the Singaporean central bank and financial regulator. They also have a financial services promotion role. So they're really aggressively trying to grow the fintech hub within Singapore. So at that event, the head of the MAS announced 11 different separate initiatives to actually promote fintech. Everything from grants to office space for fintechs to various partnerships with different things from academics to the Canadian Central Bank to some of the commercial banks. So basically Singapore is going very hard after this space. They see a real opportunity for them to be able to really become the world's biggest fintech centre and they're doing whatever they can, be it through grants trying to give some kind of technical support, also showing that the regulator is really behind this. So the regulator has a seat at the table for a lot of these projects. And what they're trying to say is, if you're going to hit into a lot of red tape from other countries, we are really here to help you and we'll be partners in this. Definitely one to watch. Thank you for that. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura here in the studio, Jim in Brussels, and also our guest, Miles Selick from City UK. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.